You're listening to ReachMD. This episode of Living Room, titled The Pathogenesis of Sjogren's Disease, What Do We Need to Know?, is sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. The host and speaker have been compensated for their time. This program is intended for healthcare professionals. Here's your host, Dr. Ethan Craig. Sjogren's disease is a complex and extremely heterogeneous inflammatory disease. While our understanding of the pathogenesis of this disease is still developing, there's a lot left to learn. On this episode of Living Room, we'll review what we know about the pathogenesis of Sjogren's disease. This is ReachMD, and I'm Dr. Ethan Craig, and joining me to discuss the pathogenesis of Sjogren's disease is Dr. Sarah McCoy. Dr. Sarah McCoy is an associate professor of rheumatology at the University of Wisconsin. She runs the Sjogren's Clinic at University of Wisconsin and serves on the board of directors for the Sjogren's Foundation. Dr. McCoy, thanks so much for being here with us today. Thanks for having me. Dr. McCoy, based on my understanding of this disease, it's often assumed that it manifests due to a trigger in an individual who already has some predisposition to it. So maybe to start off, could you discuss what we know about some of the factors that may predispose patients to Sjogren's disease? Yeah, I'd be happy to fill you in on this. So around 35% of Sjogren's disease patients have relatives with other autoimmune diseases. So Although genetics play a role, likely other factors, such as environmental insults, also play a role in the pathogenesis of Sjogren's disease. MHC variations seem important here, and they're associated with significant risk of Sjogren's disease, and this includes the HLA class 2 alleles. I won't go through and list them, but there are several that are implicated here. And we do know that these variations occur by racial background as well and serologic status. I will say that Dr. Lassard Omarf has published some really great data based on large GWAS studies in how important some of these genetic contributions are, including the HLA class 2 alleles, but also he's noted and others have noted non-MHC genes, and these have been implicated and have roles in both the innate and adaptive immune response, including IRA5 and STAT4. So Sjogren's disease is one of the most female-predominant rheumatologic diseases. I like to lead off with that because I think it's pretty impressive that it's about 14 to 1 female to male. And there are several theories as to why this might be, one of which is the contribution of the X chromosome. So we have one syndrome called Klinefelter syndrome, and these are men who have two X chromosomes and a Y chromosome. And even though they're men with those two Xs, they actually are at similar risk of Sjogren's disease. And to give another piece of evidence here, there's a disease called Turner syndrome, which are women who have one X, right? So women should have two X, and in Turner syndrome, they have one. And we know that in Turner syndrome, Sjogren's disease is rare, whereas women who have three X chromosomes, their risk of Sjogren's disease is three times higher than women who have just the standard two X chromosomes. And so these really neat chromosome studies highlight the fact that Sjogren's disease risk seems to increase with more Xs, and that really implicates the X chromosome. And then I'll give a little shout out to Dr. Yoon Liang, who was with us at University of Wisconsin and is moving over to Michigan State. And she published a recent study that showed that female mesenchymal stromal cells taken from salivary glands have X-linked genes and controls expressed equally. So your paternal X and your maternal X, whether it comes from mom and dad, is expressed equally in cells 
that come from control subjects. However, when she looked at cells taken from Sjogren's disease females, there was preferential expression from only one of the two X chromosomes. And so this is an abnormal XX allelic balance, and it doesn't seem to apply to XY males. So it's possible that females are uniquely susceptible to this dysfunction in this pathway, and it provides another possible explanation for why there's female bias in Sjogren's disease. So given that genetic background, what specific triggers seem to be able to push a susceptible patient that has one of those risk factors to develop clinical Sjogren's disease? So that's a great question. I don't think we 100% know, but we clearly do have an association with viral infections. And so, for example, we know that hepatitis C, which is psilotropic, can cause abnormal salivary gland imaging. Some studies have shown increased prevalence of hepatitis C in Sjogren's disease compared to the general population. And that indicates a possible pathogenic role of hep C. However, other studies have shown that rates of hepatitis C in Sjogren's disease are similar to the general population. And as you know, Ethan, there's a lot of difficulty in sorting out causation versus correlation. The potential role of hepatitis C in the pathogenesis of Sjogren's disease is posited to be related to molecular mimicry between HCVE2 protein and antigenic proteins or the activation of the innate immune system leading to an inflammatory cascade. Another initiator could be cellular apoptosis. Other psilotropic viruses like EBV and HIV have been similarly implicated. So now we've taken a susceptible individual and triggered the disease. So now we step back and think about once the disease is active, what the pathophysiology looks like. So let's first look at Sjogren's disease in the salivary glands. What do we know about the pathogenesis that's happening there in the salivary glands? We think that an environmental trigger like the viral triggers we just talked about, might initiate an inflammatory sequence by binding toll-like receptors on epithelial cells. And this, in turn, has several consequences. So I want you to put on your imagination hat, and let's imagine a virus or another insult like UV radiation or oxidative stress hits one of these epithelial cells, and it undergoes apoptosis, which is a natural response. And what happens is living inside the cells, we have these rho antigens, which are characteristic of Sjogren's. And these rho antigens can actually complex or unite with these things called non-coding Y RNAs. We don't 100% know the purpose of these, but regardless, what happens is you get a complex of the rho antigen and this non-coding Y RNA, and they form a little bleb on the cell surface. And usually this apoptose cell should undergo degradation, but because of these complexes, it escapes apoptotic degradation. And then this complex can be taken into a local dendritic cell or B cell, and inside that cell, they can hit the toll-like receptors and cause interferon signaling, which is a characteristic feature of Sjogren disease. So another really interesting feature of epithelial cells is that they aren't bystanders passively activating disease. They also can become antigen-presenting cells, and they can present to CD4-positive T cells. And these epithelial cells can also express chemokines like CXCL10. And CXCL10, in turn, can promote T-cell chemotaxis, and it becomes a sort of self-perpetuating cycle. Like, you know, we have more chemokines that leads to apoptosis, and then we have more antigen presenting, and then we have more T-cells coming. 
And we also know that these T cells can then enhance B cell proliferation and activity and promote autoantibody formation. And one of the other characteristic features we see in salivary glands that itself supports the role of these T and B cells in disease is that we know that CD4-positive T-cell infiltrates predominate the lymphocytic infiltrate we see in Sjogren's disease. But these CD4-positive T-cell infiltrates tend to occur more in early disease or milder disease, whereas B-cell infiltrates dominate with greater disease activity. There's a really great study that I love, published in 2021 by Verstappen and colleagues, and they looked at 39 Sjogren's disease and 20 sica control product glands, minor salivary glands, and peripheral blood. And first, so selfishly, I perform minor salivary gland biopsies, so I always try to find a role to make the minor salivary glands less minor. And here's one. So first, they found that overall, the transcriptomics of parotid and minor salivary glands are pretty similar, which is really reassuring to me as someone who does these biopsies for diagnosis, and also I use them for research. Interestingly, the transcriptome of Sjogren's disease patients whose biopsies were normal looked just like SICA control patients. So Sjogren's patients can typically be diagnosed from a positive blood test or pathology. And so what they're saying is that patients diagnosed with a positive blood test, their gland transcriptomics look just like patients who don't have Sjogren's and they're just dry. Now, if you look at the biopsy-positive Sjogren's disease patients, they had increased interferon alpha signaling, IL-1218 signaling, CD3, CD28 T-cell activation, CD40 signaling in B-cells, double negative B-cells, and follicular cell RL4-positive B-cells. Significant intersubject variability was also appreciated, which isn't a shock. I think even that's one of the first things you mentioned is it's pretty heterogeneous. And so seeing this sort of subject-to-subject variability is what we might expect with Sjogren's disease. So we talked about the pathophysiology in the salivary glands, but we also know that one of the major risks in patients with Sjogren's is specifically the development of lymphoma. So with that in mind, what do we know about the mechanisms of lymphoma genesis in these patients? Why does this occur? Yeah, Ethan, that's a major concern for our Sjogren's disease patients. And, you know, they have rates of lymphoma about 18-fold that of the general population. And of these, the most common forms of lymphoma are malt lymphoma and diffuse large B-cell lymphoma and nodal marginal zone lymphomas. And we know that there are some clinical features that are associated with these lymphomas and the development of lymphoma, including purpura, salivary gland enlargement, hypocomplementemia, in addition to a few others. We also know that high glandular interferon gamma levels are associated with this risk. And finally, we have a readout section in our salivary gland histopathology with a section for germinal centers. And the reason we have that is because ectopic germinal-like centers are also associated with risk of lymphoma. So what's going on, right? Let's get to what your question is. Why do we think this is happening? So we know within these ectopic lymphoid structures, there occurs this sort of antigen-driven B-cell activation and B-cell proliferation. And this ultimately results in immunoglobulin class switching and somatic hypermutation. And these locally produced immunoglobulins show mutation patterns that seem to indicate that there's antigen-based selection. And these include targets like ribonucleoproteins, and we know, right, that SSA 
is one of those, or rho, depending on where you're from. And the T follicular helper cells drive this B cell selection and also drive B cell differentiation into memory and plasma cells through antibody affinity maturation. And the frequency of subsets of T follicular helper cells in the salivary glands of Sjogren's patients has been correlated with the presence of memory B cells and plasma cells. So this sort of resultant immune complex of self-antigen and autoantibodies we think further stimulate B cells, and it's a self-perpetuating cycle. You know, other factors that might contribute to B cells being autoreactive, like BAF, B cell activating factor, lead to chronic B cell activation. And we also have found that there are some abnormalities in genes that lead to impaired NF-kappa-B activation, and this also can increase the risk of lymphoma. There's less TNF-AIP3 immunoreactivity in minor salivary glands of Sjogren's disease patients with lymphoma than in those without lymphoma. And then finally, there are mutations in anti-apoptotic proteins like BCL2 that have been correlated with lymphoma. And SNPs associated with BCL2 have also been associated to be increased with these germinal center-like formations, providing another piece of evidence supporting the role of BCL2 in lymphoma genesis. This is an area of active research, and we're continually discovering new pathways of lymphoma genesis in Sjogren's disease. Well, I think that's a great way to round out our discussion on the topic of pathophysiology of Sjogren's disease. I learned a ton, and I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Sarah McCoy, for helping us better understand that pathogenesis. Dr. McCoy, as always, it was great speaking with you today. Thank you for having me, Ethan. This industry podcast was sponsored by Novartis U.S. Clinical Development and Medical Affairs. If you missed any part of this discussion, or to find others in this series, visit ReachMD.com slash Living Room. This is ReachMD. Be part of the knowledge.